reading from Mark 9, starting with verse 14. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were immediately overcome with awe, and they ran forward to greet him. He asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. He answered them, you faithless generation, how much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you are able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you are able, all things can be done for the one who believes. Immediately the father, the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you spirit that keeps this boy from speaking and hearing, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he was able to stand. When he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, this kind can come out only through prayer. The word of God. You may be seated. Peter, James, and John have just come down from a mountaintop experience with Jesus. It was nothing like they'd ever seen before. Jesus' clothes were dazzling white. Elijah and Moses show up and they hear a voice from heaven saying, this is my son, the beloved, listen to him. Peter wanted to stay. Peter said, Jesus, it's good for us to be here. We can find three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And when we're on the mountaintop, don't we want to stay? For the last number of years, I've been going up three times a year to Pine Springs Ranch for a spiritual retreat for a couple days. Now, those of you who have been to Pine Springs Ranch know the reception and the internet is not the best. So I enjoy getting away for a couple days. I wonder, oh, is anybody trying to contact me? Um, but then the drive home is always very difficult because as soon as you get into reception again, bam, your phone is exploding with text messages and voicemails and all these needs. And you think for a moment, I would like to stay up on the mountaintop. When Mike and I got married, we were a little older and had a little bit more time to save up some, for some vacation days, so we took our honeymoon to Greece, and we were there for almost a whole month. And guess what? At the end of our honeymoon, we still loved each other, and we didn't want to come home. So this is fantastic. Let's just stay on honeymoon. Let's travel the world. But the reality is that you have to come back home. 
You can't stay on the mountaintop. Life is not all mountaintops and honeymoons. Yes, we all need date nights, getaways, spiritual retreats to focus on those closest relationships. That's very important. But, but then we're called to face the reality back into regular, normal life, the reality of conflict and suffering and our calling to follow Jesus in the midst of it. When Jesus, Peter, James, and uh, John get back, they find their nine teammates in a sparring match with the scribes. There's a lot of onlookers. Now, this is not the first time the scribes have confronted Jesus. I'll give you a quick rundown from the beginning of, of the book of Mark. In Mark chapter 2, the scribes ask the disciples why Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. Mark chapter 2. The next chapter in chapter 3, some scribes come from Jerusalem and say, look, this, this guy must be demon-possessed for him to be able to cast out demons. In Mark chapter 7, they, they get down to the nitty-gritty and they ask Jesus, Jesus, why aren't your disciples washing their hands before they eat? You don't believe it? It's in Mark chapter 7. Why aren't they washing their hands? The scribes were legal experts and interpreters of Scripture, and they loved discussing the fine details of the law and addressing what they thought to be the law's most difficult questions or challenges. In Greek, they're called grammatus, from gramma, something written. Does that sound familiar? It's where we get the English word grammar. I would like to suggest that these scribes are like the grammar police. Now, I have to admit right now, full disclosure, I am a badged member of the grammar police. <laughs> Do I have any friends out there? Okay, some of you, thank you. Yes, so uh, my husband and I, uh, we, we first met through mutual friends. We both lived in the area. But uh, we did not become romantically connected until he saw me on Adventist Singles Connection. Online dating, yay. So, so I scoured a lot of profiles before Mike first contacted me. And I have to tell you that when I saw typos, spelling errors, um, words that weren't capitalized, that was a big turnoff for me. Seriously. And so I ended up marrying a poet, which is great. <laughs> but, but I wondered, you know, if someone is not going to proofread their profile, how serious about this are they, really? <laughs> now, I'm proud of being a good proofreader. I'd be happy to proof things for you if you would like. I, I love doing it. It's fun for me. And I think there's a beauty in, in staying with the form of the language. But there can be a dark side, friends. <laughs> there can be a dark side to this attention to detail. I want you to imagine with me that you're looking for a housemate and you see this message. It says, hi, my name is Pat and I'm interested in sharing a house with other students who are serious about their schoolwork but who also know how to relax and have fun. I like to play tennis and love old school rap. If you're someone who likes that kind of thing too, maybe we would make good housemates. 
In 2016, Boland and Queen did a study where they shared this paragraph with certain participants, and they shared a grammatically correct one without typos to another group of participants. Then the participants had to rate the applicant on certain statements that included uh, whether or not the writer would be a good housemate, whether the writer seems less intelligent than most of my friends, whether the writer seems trustworthy. And get this, the more participants cared about grammar, the more they judged the person's intelligence and questioned their character because of their technical mistakes or their lack of following social constructs or conventions. I'm reminded that the point of language is for communication. <laughs> And the person communicated very well their message. And correcting other people's language, especially publicly. You know, if you, have a, if you want to correct something, please correct me, but take me aside privately and correct me. Correcting people's language, especially publicly, may simply communicate my own desire to share my superiority. The scribes had forgotten that the point of the law was to teach people how to better love God and better love other people. Instead, they were using their knowledge of legal technicalities, their skills, to assert their sense of superiority. So, Jesus asked the scribes, what are you arguing about with them? Before the scribes even have a chance to answer, there is a voice that breaks in from the crowd. Through the confusion, the voice says, Teacher, I brought you my son. The desperate father describes his son's condition, his request to Jesus' disciples to cast out the demon and their utter failure. Mark never tells us what they were arguing with the disciples about. But knowing this much allows us to make some educated guesses. We can guess because we've been part of these arguments too. What were they arguing about? Well, perhaps it was the blame game. Well, the parents must have done something wrong for their son to turn out the way he did. Or maybe the son did something to deserve his current circumstances. Or, or it was the failure of the school system or the rest of the community. We argue back and forth about who's to blame in situations because we hope we can control the situation. If we can identify who's to blame, then we can make sure that doesn't happen to me. And in the midst, we lose sight of the suffering father and the suffering son. Maybe they weren't playing the blame game. Maybe they were playing the solution argument. Perhaps the scribes were suggesting the right formula to say to get rid of the demon. Or, or maybe the school that the son should attend that would help him out of his current circumstance. Or perhaps the natural remedies that he should try. Maybe the scribes that day were having the, the resignation argument that this boy is just going to have seizures and there's nothing that we can do about it, so you should stop trying. It's happening, therefore, it must be God's will. Ever heard that one? We just, just resign yourself to things being the, the way that they are. 
Jesus' question gives this dad a chance to find his own voice again. And when he describes the disciples' failure, Jesus responds in a surprising way. Mark 9, verse 19, he says, You faithless generation, how much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him to me. Do you sense a little frustration in Jesus' voice here? Who exactly is he calling faithless anyway? Is it the scribes caring more about their arguments than the the man and his son? Is it the disciples who fail miserably to bring some kind of healing in this situation? Is it the father who has not been able to help his son and has been trying again and again since this boy was a, a toddler? Is it the son himself who is out of control and faithless? Is it the fickle crowd who seems in this whole thing for the entertainment value? Is it all of the above? Is Jesus simply saying, where is faith? Where is faith in the midst of this confusion and hurt? Jesus expresses the frustration and then focuses his attention on the ones that count in this story, the father and the son. Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. I love this about Jesus, because he didn't need to ask this question. It didn't matter how long it had been happening to him. And yet Jesus slows the story down and pauses and says, I want to hear your experience. I want to hear what you've been through. I want to hear how long it's been that you've been through this. Tell me your story. Jesus isn't worried about blame or solutions. He invites the father to simply talk about his son. Mark 9, 22, the father says, it's often cast him into the fire, into the water to destroy him, but if you are able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. Notice the father says, not have pity on him and help him, have pity on us and help us because the boy's struggle is not his alone. The man asked Jesus to show love for the entire community and help them all if he is able to do anything. At this point in the narrative, it sounds like Jesus goes from being frustrated to being just a little bit offended. Mark 9, verse 23, Jesus said to him, if you are able, if, if you are able, Jesus repeats the man's question and then he emphasizes it again. Now, some translations say, have Jesus saying, if you are able to believe, all things are possible. So the man says, if you're able to heal, and he says, if you're able to believe, but I prefer the other, the other translation, the majority of texts, have him simply quoting the man, if you're able. This puts the focus, this puts the focus back on Jesus and away from the man if you are able to believe. So Jesus says, if you're able, what are you saying by that? Then Jesus makes a promise. All things can be done for the one who believes. All things can be done for the one who believes. And as I was struggling with this text this week and wrestling with it, I have to say, really, Jesus? 
What do you mean by this promise? All things can be done for the one who believes. Jesus, in a few more chapters, you yourself will be asking the Father to take away a cup you don't want to drink, to find a way forward. Was there a problem with your faith, Jesus? All things can be done for the one who believes. What does Jesus mean by this promise? Because we live in the tension between the promise that all things can be done and the lived experience that all things are not done. What do you mean by this promise, all things can be done, Jesus, for the ones who believe? We live in this tension and then it becomes easy for us to join the, the grammar police, to join the scribes and say, well, it must be someone's fault. Someone didn't have enough faith. It's easy to blame the lack of desired outcomes on the one who believes. Did you not just believe hard enough? I'd like to suggest that perhaps we need to read this promise similar to Paul's words in Philippians 4, verse 13. Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, you'll hear this verse quoted a lot by people saying, you can do anything if you just believe. There'll be miracles. You can do whatever you want. You can be whatever you want to be. God will make it happen, but they don't read the verse right before it. What does Paul say one verse before? Uh, Philippians 4, verse 12, I know what it is to have little. I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and being in need. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Amen. Perhaps we need to read Jesus' promise in that way. All things can be done for the one who believes. All things can be endured for the one who believes for the one who believes. When we read this story, we assume Jesus means the Father, for certainly he's challenging his if you are able question. But Jesus already said they don't have any faith. He already said they're faithless, all of them. Jesus is the one who believes. Jesus is the one who keeps trusting God in the midst of a seemingly hopeless situation. The one who believes, the one for whom all things are possible is Jesus. The man cries, I believe, help my unbelief. This is a brave admonition on the part of a father. Everything is at stake here in this moment for him and for his family, but he doesn't worry about offending Jesus or looking bad in front of the crowd. And Jesus does not wait for the father's doubts to be resolved. Guess what? We don't know if they ever were. Doesn't tell us. Jesus himself has enough faith to go around for everyone. He rebukes the unclean spirit, and he tells him, hit the road, Jack, and don't you come back no more, no more, no more, no more. It was a safe place to share doubt with Jesus. You can share your doubts with Jesus. 
In 2014, the North American Division of Seventh Avenue commissioned a study by Barna Group to ask how the church could better engage millennials. This is a few years ago. Today, this generation is in our, because I'm on the upper end, mid-20s to late-30s, the millennials. Are there any other millennials out there? Okay. <laughs> so, in the book, you're there. I know you're there somewhere. Um, in the book, You Lost Me, Barna Group's president described six grievances that they found that millennials tend to have against the institutional church. They hold that number one. The church is intolerant of doubt. The church is elitist in its relationships, anti-science in its beliefs, overprotective of its members, shallow in its teachings, and repressive of differences. So, the Barna Group, commissioned by the North American Division, interviewed and studied Adventist millennials to see if these would also apply to how we feel about the Seventh-day Adventist church. And I was disheartened to see that Seventh-day Adventist millennials feel even stronger about the Adventist church in the negative on all of these than the rest of Christian millennials feel about the rest of the Christian church. Larger percentages feel that the Adventist church has these characteristics than other Christians felt about their churches. 28%, so 10% of Christian millennials felt the church had a hard time with doubt. 28% of Adventist millennials felt their church is intolerant of doubt. 28%. 36% felt they were not able to, quote, ask my most pressing life questions in church. 23% had, quote, significant intellectual doubts about their faith, and yet they're not able to voice those or share those. I'm so grateful to be here at La Sierra, amen? Part of our mission statement, we write this, part of our mission statement is that we're, quote, seeking always to be relevant, raw, and wrestling with our faith. Relevant, raw, wrestling. We're committed to being a safe place wherever you're at in your journey with Jesus. And we actually believe that expressing doubts is an important part of spiritual growth. We actually believe that talking through these questions, even though they can be scary, and being honest about them will bring you closer to Jesus, not farther away from Jesus. This is a safe place to express your doubts, and we believe faith with doubts results in a more resilient, mature faith than faith without doubts. Jesus doesn't wait for the Father's doubts to dissolve. Jesus rebukes the Spirit, but what happens next is surprising. We would expect Jesus rebukes the Spirit, the Spirit is gone, the boy is healed, everybody praises God, and that's it. Well, that's not quite how the story goes, friends. Jesus rebukes the spirit, and the boy dies. At least that's what it looks like. It looks like the cure is worse than the disease. The crowd thinks the boy is dead, that this is the end, that the destructive spirit has gotten the better of Jesus after all. Mark 9, 27, though, says that Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he was able to stand. This is resurrection language. 
This is the same language that is used for Jairus when his daughter dies and Jesus takes her by the hand and raises her up. This is a resurrection. When it looks like the son is dead, his demons were too much for him and all hope is gone, Jesus changes the script. He touches the son and his life returns. Immediately after this story, Jesus tells his disciples for the second time what's about to happen to him. Mark 9, verse 31, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the son of man is to be betrayed into human hands and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. Like this son, Jesus would be thrown to the ground in dark gardens by a troubled spirit. He would be taken places he didn't want to go. He would be torn apart by evil. He would be killed, dead for three days. But that wouldn't be the end of his story. He would rise again, and he would take all human sons and daughters by the hand and lift us up and make us stand. The nine disciples were shaken by their failure. They had trained for this, after all, they had experience. Mark 6, verse 13 says, they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. They didn't get it, Jesus, why was it different this time? And so they, after the whole thing had ended, they, away from the pressure of the crowd and the critique of the scribes, they, they asked Jesus, what went wrong, Jesus? Mark 9, verse 28, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus says to them, this kind can come out only through prayer. Here, friends, we run the risk of a new legalism. We play into the blame game of the scribes. If we had just prayed harder or longer, or maybe if we had said the right words in the prayer, or maybe if we had more people praying, or maybe if we uh, did all sorts of different things of prayer, had more prayer days, maybe then we could have saved the son. We could have controlled the situation. We could have determined the outcome. We could have seen how things went down. But ironically, when you read the story, Jesus doesn't say a prayer at all in this whole story. He doesn't ask other people to pray. He doesn't have the disciples, okay, come, you come all, you pray while I do this thing. He doesn't say that. The only prayer voiced in this story is the prayer of the struggling father himself who says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Perhaps this is the prayer Jesus is talking about, the kind of prayer his disciples need, the kind of prayer we need today. The father's prayer is an acknowledgement that this situation is beyond him, that there's nothing he can do to control it or to get the outcome that he wants. He's placing all his bets on a God he's choosing to believe in while being honest about his very real doubts. Friends, it's been a hard, dark week. This week, we lost more sons and daughters of God in the terrible war that's going on in Ukraine. And our prayers are with everyone uh, who's experiencing that terrible violence and loss. This week on our own La Sierra University campus, we lost one of our own students in a tragic death. We prayed for his family today. 
Jalen was known, in the words of President Joy Fair, for his sweet smile, instinctive kindnesses, quick humor, and gentle ways. I did not know, have the privilege of knowing him. But our prayers today are with the Tamalea family and all those who knew and loved Jalen or Mareko. It's been a hard, dark week for us, friends. How are we to respond? The scribes focused on arguing the case, on figuring out who was to blame or what solution ought to be done. The disciples were paralyzed by their own sense of failure. The crowd had no clue how to relate to the suffering, but somehow they couldn't manage to turn their news feeds off. The father brought his pain to Jesus, not sure if it would do any good, but praying, I believe, help my unbelief. Between now and Easter, Pastor Devo shared, we're sharing personal experiences of light shining in the midst of darkness. Some of these will be acts of kindness, the support of friends or family, thoughts, songs that have come to your hearts, the gift of being in nature, verses that come to mind. If you would like to share a story in the midst of dark times of how you've experienced light and, and seen light, please tell me. We'd love to hear your story, 16 to 90 seconds on video. What are we to do? How are you to respond? Jesus rebuked the darkness. Then he took one by the hand and raised him up. You and I are called to be the body of Christ. We are called to rebuke the darkness. We're called to extend our hands to those who feel helpless, to lift each other up while we wait for the return of the sun. And it, when it looks like the demons have won, when all seems lost, when our sons and daughters are dead, we're called to trust in the one who rose again, the one who touches people and situations that look hopeless, friends, the one who promises to raise us to new life. Amen.